0: Let's get to our series on facing doubt. This is a series that we started just two weeks ago. And when we introduced this series, uh, one of the first things that we wanted to establish was what, what we need to think about when it comes to the issue and the subject of doubt. That Essentially, part of what we advocated for is that doubt is in and of itself neutral. And that that's an important thing to keep in mind when you go into a series like this because a lot of times as believers, we kind of draw from this assumption that, that doubt is maybe sinful or that as a believer, I should never question God or have any questions. And that's just not true to the human experience. And you can pour through the pages of Scripture and see numerous examples of people asking very difficult questions, doubting Thomas, right? the, the, the Psalms, like, how long will you forget me? Doubt is all over the Scripture, It's an inevitable part of the human experience. So doubt's neutral. The greater question is what do I do with it? And and what we can see is that doubt creates this crossroads where I can either run away from God and doubt can weaken my faith or I can run to God and those questions can actually strengthen my faith. And so this series is designed to, to help us run to God in a way that those questions, those difficult questions, can hopefully strengthen us, right, and encourage us. And so the first question that we tried to tackle that first week was doubting God's existence. Is there even a God? And, and what we tried to establish was that uh, whether, whatever you believe about God, if, you, if you're going to say, I believe God exists or I don't believe God exists, either one of those is a statement of faith. Right, because you can't prove God exists, but you can't prove that he doesn't exist. And so no matter your answer to that question, you're operating by faith, and you have created a system of beliefs that is governing your life based on your answer to that question. So it's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle of faith no matter what you do. And so the approach was not to try to prove God's existence, right? I mean, we referenced uh, different vantage points that people have used before in that, in that kind of spirit where you think about intelligent design, cosmological argument, and so on and so forth. But the real point of that first sermon was how do you, how do you think, not what do you need to think. How do I think critically about my faith and my belief system that shapes my view of this world? Uh, we referenced Timothy Keller's uh, Questioning Christianity podcast where he gives some really helpful questions to, to think critically about our sets of beliefs. And just a quick review those questions were Are are my beliefs consistent or do they contradict one another? Are those beliefs consistent with what I experience um, in life? Are, Are those beliefs having to borrow from other sets of beliefs to try to make the world make sense? And then the fourth one can I embrace the conclusion of my beliefs? And so when you when you employ those sorts of questions and and kind of try to set aside your biases and your background beliefs, you can think more critically about what it is that you have seen as an answer to that question. And I believe that if you do that well, you will time and time again see the consistency and the reasonable approach to believe in God, especially the God of the Bible. Right? But that was kind of the first approach. Last week. Uh, we shifted gears to another question, and Sam Parrish did a phenomenal job filling in. Can you put your hands together for Sam, uh, for those of you that were here to hear him? Sam did a great job of, of addressing the question of what do we do when we have doubt in ourself, right? Psalm 13 in particular, that feeling of how long, O Lord, will you forget me? Those moments where we feel unseen, uh, we can't find a sense of our worth or our value, and it feels like God isn't there. Um, and he did a phenomenal job of providing thoughtful and articulate interpretation of that text to walk us through it, to, to remind us of how community and one another can pull us out of those moments, not, not to say that those questions just always go away, but that we can be reminded of his promises, both in the immediate present as well as the eternal promise of the future. So he did a phenomenal job of walking us through that. So we've, we've tackled two pretty big questions. Here's the question today. Uh, what do we do when we have doubt in God's church? And when I say that, I I kind of am referencing a couple of different ways that that tends to play itself out. Some folks would say, you know, I still believe in God, I'm still spiritual, I'm still a Christian, whatever, however they categorize themselves, I just don't believe in church, right? I don't need church, I don't want to go to church, whatever it is, it hasn't jeopardized my belief, but I really don't trust the church. Uh, But then there are others who, who really are going to take it a step further, I'm going to say, I, I don't trust the church to the point that I don't trust the God that the church claims to believe in, right? And, and so either one is, is pretty um, concerning, e- either way that you interpret this, but that's kind of the mindset that we want to address today is how does that happen, right? W- what contributes to that sort of questioning that leads you to either disengage from the community of faith altogether or even to the point where you would uh, disengage your faith in God as a whole? And, and so probably the, the other way that we could talk about this, and I think what really drives doubt in the church is, is really church hurt, would be a phrase that we will kind of uh, rely upon this morning. There are numerous times where people have been wounded by the church, and the church has caused really significant pain in the lives of others. And, and that pain leads to significant questions and doubt that can be destructive. And and so what I want us to do this morning is is to first, uh, as quickly as we can, acknowledge specifically what we're talking about there with some examples from a cultural perspective, like the, the sort of examples of church hurt that we've seen before. Um, And and then we're going to shift to a little bit of a biblical perspective to see what it is that we can find in the Scripture to to hopefully help us navigate our understanding of those things. And then at the end, we'll look at what the response needs to be. So when you think about, just very quickly, some examples of church hurt from a cultural perspective, a a lot of them happen in a very public arena, right? And it's it's something that people see and hear. I I was sitting there thinking about just in my lifetime— the numerous examples that I could draw upon where the church has failed and hurt people, right? And it it hits on a variety of topics. For example, uh, just some names that came to my mind were Ted Haggard, uh, Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, uh, Carl Lentz, Brian Houston, uh, numerous examples within the Catholic Church, and then even more recently, the Houston Chronicle Report on Southern Baptist Churches, All, all of these incidences relating to sexual abuse of some form. Uh, abuse, infidelity, impropriety, right, like in, in a very public capacity that wounds a lot of people in the process. Uh, it's not always uh, sexual in nature, sometimes it's doctrinal. Uh, Rob Bell came to mind. Rob Bell writes a book, Love, Love Wins, and begins to shift more towards universalism. And in that doctrinal shift, created a, a significant fallout for him, for the church, and the way that the Christian community responded to him, which I would argue in ways that was probably not very constructive. But that was a very public display of how Christians often fight about doctrine. Uh, You could think about churches like Westboro Baptist, right, and and the representation of just hostility and anger and judgment, and and how many times that church has made the news for its hatred uh, and for its judgmental approach. Uh, Probably the the most popular one of recent notes would be the uh, incredible popularity of the podcast The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and in the tracking of that church in Seattle and Mark Driscoll and his leadership, uh, that was a top three podcast on Apple iTunes, like top three for all their podcasts at one point because so many people were interested in it. And when you listen to that podcast, it was numerous issues, greed, uh, celebrity, um, power, uh, sexism. I mean, just number of topics that took place in that church. So numerous times in a very public avenue where we have seen the church significantly wound people. And, and whether you were directly or indirectly impacted, a lot of people will respond as a result. I will tell you that probably what um, concerns me more than anything are not the conversations that I've had about the public display of church hurt, but the more private ones that don't go as noticed, but are just as real and painful. I think about the time that when I just started pastoring here, I sit down with a young couple that's looking for a church, and they said, well, let's go grab coffee. I want to hear more about UBC, and I'm talking to them about UBC, and the, the longer the conversation went on, I realized that what they really wanted to know more about was not so much the church, but about me, and as we talked, uh, the, the wife in, in the scenario eventually kind of opened up and, and more or less confessed, I'm trying to figure out if I can really trust you. And, and was willing to share a little bit that part of the reason she had been out of church for so long was because of some pain that she experienced when she was in a youth group and the moral failings of her youth pastor and what that did to her and her church. And she just was not ready to trust. I think about a good friend of mine who's not a believer. And when, when she and I had conversations about why, uh, one of the things that she told me, two stories that she shared were related to what she saw in the church. One was, a friend of hers that when she was in high school um, became pregnant and then was almost immediately ostracized from her family and from her church. She talked about another situation, not, not the same child, but another situation where this child, uh, this baby, was, uh, uh, died shortly after birth, and she attended the service for the, for the baby, and the priest said in the service that inferred that the child would likely be in hell because it wasn't baptized, And so she tells these stories to which I immediately apologized, right, and tried to correct, but that's why she was like, I'm not interested. If that's what that is, I'm not interested. It's a long list of church hurt. Uh, The results, one statistic that I came across, there are a number of statistics that I could share with you this morning. I'll just give you this one. Uh, I think this was from Barna, that they estimate that around 66% of the, the generation that grows up in the church, by the time they get to 18 and, and get out of the house, uh, 66% of them will stop going to church. <laughs> and and there's a lot of reasons why. Some of it's because, well, I'm in college and I don't have to now. right? But but they also asked them, what's the, what's the reason you stop? And one of the top five reasons is because for them the church is a place of division, hypocrisy, and being judgmental. So significant church hurt that leads to um, wounds, doubts, question. And it's it's significantly destructive. And so what we want to do today is acknowledge those examples and figure out what's going on here, right? Why is this happening? That's kind of where I want to start, is, is at least go to the text and the scriptures to first and foremost remind ourselves of the standard, like what the church should be who we should be, but then also try to answer why do we fall short, right? And, and figure out the standard and the problem before we figure out the response, okay? So I'm actually gonna be in Ephesians. I, I, I shifted gears this week. I initially was gonna be in Corinthians, but I, I wanted to land in a place that we could kind of look at several things. And Ephesians is just a great letter to look comprehensively at the church. So start with Ephesians 4. And uh, just as a preface, as we go into this, Uh, This is not, again, a deep exegetical dive into this text. We've actually done that already. We went through Ephesians not too long ago, and so if you want a a deep dive into Ephesians 4, you can get into our sermon archive, go search for that series, and and we break chapter four down verse by verse practically. So that's not what we're looking at today. Uh, But we're going to start at chapter four, and I'm going to bounce around throughout the course of the sermon to draw from other elements of the book of Ephesians to try to acknowledge this. Because here, here's where I think we have to begin. We have to realize that if you are personally wounded by the church or you're in the church, we all need to remind ourselves of the standard. Like what the church should be. I don't want any question about is does God condone that behavior? Is that what he expects from his people? Like we need a clear image of what God has asked his church to be and who he has asked us to be. And, and Ephesians 4 is, is a great example of that. So for the sake of time, I'm not gonna read all of it. I'm gonna just highlight some of the things that we see in chapter four, verses one through 16. So you can kind of follow along. But what we're called to, we are called to live a life worthy of this gospel. right? That, that is the expectation of the church. So what does that look like? Well, be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bear with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. A lot of times we don't even want to make the effort through the bond of peace. It should be a place of peace. There should be a a message of oneness that focuses in on one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? That that Christ has gifted his people according to his grace for them to fulfill different roles like uh, apostles, and uh, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And what are we called to do when we gather? Called to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up till we reach unity, till we achieve maturity so that we're not tossed back and forth like infants with every little deceitful scheme and every different teaching. We're called to speak the truth in love. A lot of times we'll do one or the other and we're called to do both. And all of this is so that we can be joined together, supporting one another so that we can be built up in that love that Christ has shown us. And that's just a highlight, a quick run-through of Ephesians 4. That's the standard, right? And yet, consistently, we fall short, right? We don't live up to this standard. And part of what I want us to see is that, yes, is that difficult? Absolutely. But it's not impossible. And, And it does happen, And so even though the church makes mistakes and has had numerous failings from the very beginning of time, right, there are also these incredible moments where we get it right. And we get these glimpses of exactly what we've just read. We get glimpses of this humility, this peace, this patience, this bearing with one another in love, and it is an incredible expression of the gospel. So we can never lose sight of the standard, and we must never give up on striving for the standard. So so in order for us to strive for it well, we need to then ask, why do we fall short? Like, what trips us up? And that's where I want us to look look for a brief moment at Ephesians 6, okay? You just flip a little page there, Ephesians 6. Uh, Here to me is a a simple way to understand why we fall short. I'm going to look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We aren't. That would be the first reason. We are not strong in the Lord. We good? Sorry, I heard a, <laughs> okay, sorry. There is a, yeah. Be strong, <laughs> be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Uh, to be honest, y'all, we aren't at times. Uh, what I mean by that is our relationship with the Lord. Like we, we don't cultivate it, we don't strengthen it. Uh, we, we don't spend time in the word. We don't spend time in prayer. We don't spend time in community. We're not strong in the Lord. And amazingly, we will give people who aren't strong in the Lord positions of leadership because they're charismatic, because they're engaging, right? And, and we as a church family, uh, we oftentimes won't strengthen ourselves. And when we aren't strong in the Lord, we become weak and susceptible to these sorts of shortcomings. So you've got to be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God. We don't. Like, we don't really take it seriously. Like, a lot of times we take it for granted, and church for us is something that I do on a weekly basis. It's, it's somewhere where I go to, to sing a little bit and, and to be entertained and all these different things, when in reality, you're here to be built up. You're here to be equipped, not to consume. And so we don't take it seriously. We don't take the threats of, of our fallen nature seriously, and so we don't put on the armor. We forget that we're in a fight. We forget that we're in a battle. And then we absolutely make ourselves susceptible to all these different tactics that the devil implores and we fall victim to him, which is what happens. You don't put on the armor of God. Why? To protect yourself against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Y'all, we are combating against spiritual forces of evil. Now, the devil will want to do everything he can to make us think that we're fighting each other. But the real struggle is against powers of darkness. And we don't take it seriously. Like, we are in a fight. We must put on the armor. Right? Pair this with 1 Peter 5.8 that describes the adversary, that describes the devil. What does he say in 1 Peter 5.8? Right? The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. I think that verse doesn't land with us because I'm willing to bet very few of you have an actual memory of a roaring lion. Like I've been to the zoo probably like 20, 30, 50 billion times, okay? And and most every single time that lion is sleeping, correct? Am I wrong? Like you go and you've got your kid and you're like, there's the lion. And they're like, where? I'm like, well, it's laying down on the rock back there. And that's our picture of a lion, one time. One time I go to the zoo and I'm like at the front gate and there was this incredible roar that like sent chills down my spine. I was like, what was that? And I thought it was the gorilla because we were near the front entrance and the gorilla is like the first exhibit. And you could hear people talking, no, dude, the lion is roaring. And it woke us up. Like you were alert. That's the difference. Like a lot of times we think the devil's asleep and we're kind of like maybe occasionally looking to see if he's active. When in reality, when we understand he is roaring, it should wake us up. And we would put on the armor. We do those things and we guard against falling short of the standard. Right? And so that's the problem. Right? We don't do these things and so our sinfulness uh, falls victim to the devil's schemes. And the next thing you know, the church makes significant errors, wounds one another, and wounds the people around them. And you deal with church hurt that creates a tremendous amount of doubt. So, so what do we do with it? Like, what is the response? Let's say we've, we've seen it, we've gone through it. Here, here's how I want to address the response. Um, I, I want to be mindful of probably two different categories of perspectives that we need to be mindful of this morning. One is, some of us are going to say, look, I personally haven't been wounded by the church. I believe in the church. I love the church. Um, and, and so what do I do? How do I help? Right, And so I need to talk to that group of folks today, but many of us, I would be willing to bet, are sitting here today saying, yeah, I have been wounded, and I have had hurt, and, and you might know somebody that's significantly wounded, so how do we talk to those folks that are in that sort of pain? And, and the way I want to approach that is to, to talk about those two different perspectives where really the response, or at least the steps, are going to be same or similar But there's gonna be some nuances and differences because those are two very different vantage points. So I wanna create those distinctions first and then we'll end by saying, here's what we all have to do regardless of what your view is, okay? So so let's start with those that would say, I haven't been hurt by the church, Um, I'm in the church, and so what do I need to do knowing that these uh, things have taken place? How do I help people wrestle with this doubt? Um, The first thing that I would say is that uh, you have to acknowledge other people's pain. Like, we have to acknowledge other people's pain. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, as it's talking about the body of Christ, that when one part suffers, every part suffers with it. So, so we don't get to just create a bubble and say, well, UBC's different, right? Like, when Westboro makes a mistake, when another fallen pastor makes a mistake, or whatever, like, when the church suffers, we suffer with it. So we have to own that, And and when people are wounded and in pain, we need to acknowledge their pain. We must not disregard it and dismiss it and pretend like it's not a big deal. That would be like somebody showing up on your front door beaten and bloody, and you say, hey, good to see you, come on in. You want some water? Like somebody shows up on your front door beaten and bloody, what are you gonna do? You're gonna say, oh my goodness, what happened to you? Come in, let me get some bandages, let me get some bandages, Let let me care for your wounds. That's the posture we have to assume. We have to acknowledge people's pain. And then we have to somehow learn from it and grow from it. And and the way that you do that is that we as a church, we have to listen. Right? We can't just dismiss it. We can't just say, I'm sorry, and move on. You have to listen. Because really what is the path forward for the church is confession and repentance. But we have to know, confess what, And repent from what? We have to be willing to to go into some thoughtful introspection as the church to say this is where we learn from the mistakes that we are making. It's not enough just to say I'm sorry and move on. And and so we have to listen. And when we listen, hopefully we discover some things that will help us deal with confession and repentance in a constructive way, not in a way that's just going to perpetuate the problem. And so here's a little bit of what I think that looks like, and this is similar when you're wounded by the church, but from a very different perspective and takeaway, okay? When you go through a season of introspection to to try to heal up from church hurt, especially if you're the church and trying to figure things out, here's what I think you're gonna find. Uh, On some situations, you're gonna find that it was just a mistake, right? Like, mistakes happen. There is no such thing as a perfect faith community. Doesn't matter what set of beliefs you subscribe to, None of them are perfect. So it could be that the pain that was inflicted was an honest mistake, right? You, you, you didn't, it wasn't intentional, it wasn't egregious, but it was hurtful. And, and there are times where we have to say, man, I made a mistake, we made a mistake, whatever it was, and we're gonna look at that and see why that mistake was made and we're gonna learn from it, and we're gonna get better, right? So mistakes happen, and we need to acknowledge that. But a lot of times, the sort of church hurt that we're talking about is much more egregious and is somewhat intentional and malicious, and that often comes from a, d- a deeper place that still needs to be evaluated. Uh, sometimes we hurt other people and cause church pain because we are wounded ourselves, right? And, and so this could be collectively or individually. So, like, maybe a church is just wounded, And it just keeps wounding other people in the process. Maybe a church never healed from a church split or some infighting and the whole sheep-biting sheep sort of culture and dynamic. And now anytime somebody steps into the fold, they're gonna get bitten as well because there are these wounds that a church congregation hasn't healed from. Sometimes people in leadership, fallen pastors, fallen deacons, whatever they may be, they are doing certain things because they themselves are wounded, right? It's the whole idea of hurt people hurt people. And so a lot of times we need to do a deep dive to say, did I cause this pain? Did we cause this pain? Because we're broken and still wounded from something pretty traumatic ourselves. And until we deal with that, we're not ever gonna be a place where we can healthily love others. So we need to evaluate, is there a wound? The other thing that we might find is not necessarily a mistake, maybe not a wound, but an idol. Right, an idol is where we lose focus. An idol is where we go, okay, this is what really we're after, we're about numbers, we're about budget dollars, we're about popularity, we're about a certain culture, we're about whatever it is, and we have an agenda, and we're gonna do whatever we can to achieve it. This is where you get the mentality of get on the bus or get run over by the bus, right? And, and that happens all the time, and the church loses its focus, and that's where corruption, deceit, manipulation, all those things settle in because you have an idol. So a church and church leadership has to think very critically, was this a mistake, was this a wound, was it an idol? Right? That's the first process. Now let me, let me pivot to those that have been wounded by the church and walk through a similar journey before we see how we all need to respond in a very similar way. So if you are here today and you have been wounded, you're in the middle of pain, or you know someone that is, uh, here's what I would recommend. First and foremost, you have to identify if you're in a toxic environment and, and if you are, you need to remove yourself from it. Or like some of the things that we referenced there and that list of, of offenses from the church are very toxic, unhealthy, abusive environments. And, and you should not be in an abusive situation or environment. You need to be able to identify that and remove yourself from it. Sadly, there are numerous churches and church leaders that have created a toxic environment. So you gotta be able to identify it, right? Because a lot of times what will happen is we get tripped or trapped and tricked into thinking, I should stay, right? Because we'll be manipulated, we'll, we'll have people spiritually uh, misuse scripture and, and coerce people to stay in an environment that is not healthy. And so you've gotta be able to recognize, man, this is toxic. Here, here are some ways to identify a toxic, unhealthy environment. Lack of accountability from the leadership, lack of transparency from the leadership, Um, uh, uh, unrepentant leaders an unrepentant congregation a culture that that promotes fear more than joy right where you come to church and it's hard to hear the good news because it just doesn't seem good because all the conversations are about hell fire and brimstone or anything else judgmental and negative rather you got to find these things Uh, a church that doesn't teach the scripture right, that it can just doctrinally go wherever it wants to, that allows you to, to avoid any sort of accountability to the text. you got to look for those warning signs, and when you see those things, you've got to remove yourself from a toxic environment. And, and then once you do, uh, you've got to give yourself space to heal. If you've been wounded, man, that healing process can take time. A lot of times, it's going to require professionals that can help you walk through it. Um, a lot of times, it might require a break From the church. Don't give up on her. But you might need a break. But you gotta create an atmosphere where you remove yourself from the toxicity and then give yourself a chance to heal. Okay? So that's kind of the first step in in my estimation. Now, then you also have got to go through kind of an introspection process. Now, I want to be very careful with how I say this because if, if you're a victim of like significant abuse of any capacity. Um, you are not at fault. Can I say that very clearly? Like I am in no way trying to insinuate that if you were a recipient of that kind of toxic, abusive environment, that you are to blame. Okay, that is not something you should ever fall victim to. So for those egregious incidences, um, I'm not really speaking to that. I'm talking about now this sort of church pain that maybe you just find yourself walking around angry at the church, For a lot of different reasons. Maybe there was some direct, indirect things, and and you've got to figure out why do I have this anger, why do I have this frustration, why I have this doubt? And and it's not direct correlation to some sort of abuse. Okay, does that make sense? I'm I'm kind of shifting gears to a lesser extent to where that pain can come from. When you're in that situation, I think you've got to ask yourself the same sort of questions. Hey, did I just make a mistake? Like, did I contribute to this? Did did I say something that was catalytic or instigated this reaction? Did I help sow seeds of division or animosity or what? Like, like there's gotta be some self-accountability there and introspection. Did I make a mistake? Was it intentional, unintentional? Am I wounded? Right, like it is the reason I'm so distrusting of the church because I have a deeper wound I've never dealt with. I was listening to a podcast this week on this subject and this one lady was talking about her first experience of being wounded by the church and I thought this was very telling because she said this pastor came forward and he had all these moral failings and it was just terrible stuff, and she said in the minute I heard, my first thought was here's one more man I can't trust in my life. And she referenced the fallout from her father who had left her when she was young. So that doesn't justify the actions of the pastor, but what that reveals is there's multiple layers of hurt there, right? There's a deeper wound, and if she's ever gonna trust the church, she's gonna have to deal with that deep wound as well. So is your frustration, is your pain, is it coming from a deeper wound? The third one you gotta ask, is there an idol? Like am I just angry at the church because quite frankly there's an idol that I really care about. And if that idol isn't supported and worshiped and, and advocated for, then I'm gonna make everybody else know that I don't trust them because they don't support what I support. If I can be honest, I typically see this most frequently in today's culture related to politics. I'm going to have this idol of a political ideology. And if my church doesn't support it, then by golly, they're the reason everything's wrong in the world. Right? Are you holding so tightly to an agenda, to a viewpoint or something that really is an idol and you're using it to justify your hatred towards the church? The point is this, y'all. No matter where you are, it's going to have to require thoughtful introspection if we're going to heal and work together. So you've got to walk through those those steps regardless of how you've experienced any level of church pain. Now, once we've done that, or as we've done that, here's what we all have to do regardless of where you fall in this scenario. Here's what we all have to do. Um, You can't lose sight of Jesus. (laughs) That's the most important piece in this whole discussion. You cannot lose sight of Jesus. It is a terrible trade-off To turn your back on the savior of the world because of the shortcomings of individuals. Right? And and quite honestly, it doesn't really make sense. Uh, Another podcast that was uh, recommended to me from a staff member uh, included an interview from Philip Yancey, who uh, has gone through his own uh, experience of church hurt from when he was younger and he offered this illustration in this interview that I thought was really helpful and, and a good image for us to, to think about today. Here's his illustration. He says, imagine going to like a junior high orchestra concert. In the orchestra concert, they're gonna play one of Beethoven's symphonies. And because it's a junior high orchestra concert, like, there's gonna be some notes that are missed, there are gonna be some parts that are a little cringeworthy and not great. So imagine walking out of that concert going, Beethoven is terrible he does not know anything about music. I'm never going to listen and respect Beethoven again. Like, that doesn't make sense. And I would take it a step further, right? Like, what person's going to go to a junior high concert and be like, I can't believe y'all didn't play Beethoven perfectly. I'm never coming to another junior high concert again. You guys are terrible, right? Like, you're going to go into it knowing, like, there's a work in process, right? And, And so that's That's what we need to do is not lose sight of Jesus. We can't give up on Jesus because of the shortcomings of the church. And we can't expect the church to be perfect because we're learning, we're in a work in process. So we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. And what do we find when we look at Jesus? We find somebody that fulfills the standard, don't we? We find somebody that lived a life that was worthy of the calling calling he received to the point that he was obedient to death on the cross. Perfect humility, patience, bearing with one another in love, someone that was gentle, someone that gifted to others grace and led them and equipped them. He spoke the truth in love. He built people up. He set the standard. And we marvel at it. We can't lose sight of Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, what do we find? For whatever reason, he entrusted this task to the church his plan was to take broken people and give them the chance to sing a song of new Jerusalem and so if we question the church we question his plan we've got to know and trust that he has a reason for this that there's a purpose behind it and what are the other, what's the other thing we see when we look at Jesus it's not just that he entrusted the church he loves the church if he loves the church, so should we. And this is another, I think, analogy that I heard that was, uh, I think, again, fairly appropriate for this discussion. Imagine you have a good friend, like one of your best friends, if not your best friend, who gets engaged to a fiance, and he gets engaged to his fiance, and you just find her incredibly unattractive. So like, would you go up to your friend and be like, hey man, really, I, you should break up with her because she's ugly, or would you think to yourself, I just can't be this dude's friend anymore because he chose an unattractive fiance? Like, you're not going to do that. You're going to say, man, you love her? I'm going to love her too. Right? And so we, we don't need to just look at the blemishes, the unattractive parts of the church, and then question Christ. If he loves her, so should we. And the reason I think that becomes so powerful and so beautiful is because this is the image that we see in Scripture, that Christ is the groom, the church is the bride. And we can look in this life and see that, yes, this bride, this church is filled with faults and failings and failures and all these blemishes, but there will be a day when we sing that song of New Jerusalem where the church will be presented before God as a radiant bride. And we will marvel at how he took all those faults and those failings and he transformed them into glory. (laughs) And so we should love the church. Now, here's how I'll close it. How is any of this possible? How do we live this out but by grace? That's the only way. Matthew 18, Peter asked Jesus, How many times do I need to forgive my brother and sister? Seven. And Jesus says no, 77 times. Which is another way of just saying as many times as it takes. You read Ephesians 2. God is so rich in mercy. He has lavished his love upon us. And you are saved by grace. So as recipients of grace, we need to be people. And we need to extend that grace to one another and live by it to the point that it drives us to our knees in prayer just like we see in Ephesians 3 so that together, hand in hand, faults and flaws and all these imperfections together, we can still come together and grasp how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Jesus. And what we'll find, church, is that that reminder of this doxology that, uh, that Paul gives us in Ephesians 3. You may sit there today and you may think about all the challenges that come with church hurt and pain and you may think, man, there's no way I can overcome it. God God can't do this for me. He's not able to do this and what I want to remind you of is that God is able to do immeasurably more than we ever ask or imagine because his power is at work within us. The forces of evil at work but so is the power of God and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so we let his power at work within us and we will see his glory through the church and in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we ask that you would once again bestow it upon us, God, in a way that redeems and heals and restores And I just pray, uh, first and foremost, for anyone that is in this room today whose heart has been wounded and is in pain because of the church. God, I pray for people that aren't in this room that have been wounded and are in pain because of the church. And I pray that you would speak to them powerfully in this moment and you would allow them to see through all the heartache all the frustration, all the anger, and help them just to see Jesus. Let them be reminded of the incredible grace that they have received. And may it provide a sense of healing and comfort, God, that allows them to extend that same grace to others. And God, I pray for your church. God, we confess too many times the body of Christ has misrepresented you. fallen short give us the eyes to see as you see that we can confess and repent in a way that brings healing and brings change so that once again god we can see your power at work within us god we pray that as we dive into these sorts of things god your power would be put on display and the glory of jesus would be revealed to the world not because we're perfect but because we are people of grace. May that grace rise up and overflow in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.